Welcome, everybody. It's good to see you. Welcome to a month-long emphasis on family. Uh, I love that we just finish Romans and then we go right into family. And it is a great time because right now, if you're like me and my family, this is the busiest and sometimes the most stressful time of year. Trying to get all the kids ready and watching your wallet and your checking account dwindle because the kids need shoes and clothes and all those non-necessary things. Um, <clears throat> so this month we're going to be focusing on the family. Uh, today I'll kind of do an overall intro and talk about the family of God. And then for the next three Sundays we're going to be talking about uh, marriage, parenting, and then just family issues. Okay, So this is going to be a really good and hopefully very helpful and practical series for us. Uh, I'm looking forward to what the next few weeks have to bring. Um, but I'm going to begin our series on family by talking about something else. Uh, talking about worldview, a term called worldview for a moment. I've spent the last four years uh, teaching eighth graders at Grace Christian Academy about worldview. And what do I mean by worldview? Well, this is the definition. It's a set of one's most basic beliefs which shape their view of and for the world and are the basis of all their decisions and actions. That's the basic definition of a worldview. And what, do I, what does this mean? So it shapes your view of and for the world. Um, consider it like a, a pair of glasses, if you will. Uh, as the world sends us messages and as we look out and see the world, our view of the world, our worldview shapes how we see it. It shapes how we see and interpret reality and the culture in which we live. Our worldview also shapes how we think the world should look like, our view for the world. So how should it be? How should people act? And then it, put it all together and it forms the foundation of every decision, every action, every word you'll say. That's worldview. And everybody in the world has a worldview, whether they realize it or not, whether they think deeply about this or not. All ages, all places, everybody has a worldview, and that worldview is constantly changing because we are constantly taking in more messages and growing, and that worldview is expanding. And there are four questions at the very core of everyone's worldview. Four questions that every human has an innate need to answer no matter who you are or where you are. We call them the four ultimate questions. And they are wrapped up like this. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. So origin, where am I from? How did I get here? How did any of this get here? Meaning, why? Why am I here? Morality, what is right and what is wrong? And who gets to decide? And then finally, destiny. Where am I going after this, if anywhere? Your answers to those four questions form the foundation of your worldview and therefore determine how you live your life. What a person believes about these questions will shape how they think and act. Actions are the end result or the fruit of our core beliefs. The main point in discussing worldview with you guys is to clearly point out that who we are shapes what we do. 
Your actions are inescapably rooted in your identity. Say that again. Your actions are inescapably rooted in your identity. Therefore, what you believe about yourself will determine how you live your life. What you believe about yourself will determine how you live your life. So we look at people's actions on the news, like some kind of riot that just broke out in New York City this past week because somebody was going to hand out a PlayStation. And we're thinking, oh my goodness, what is going on with this world? People are crazy. Because from our worldview, that doesn't make sense. But we have to look at their worldview. And when we look at the worldview of other people around the world, their actions and their motives become clear. They're not really that hard to understand if we look at everything from a worldview perspective. So why did I spend all that time talking about worldview and making the point um, that I made when we're supposed to be talking about family? Well, I'm simply doing what Paul did. I'm doing what Paul did, and I figure that's a pretty safe bet because Paul is a much better preacher than I am. He kind of knew what he was doing. So I'm going to do what he did, or at least try. Paul always tied people's actions back to their identity. I mean, we just went through the book of Romans. And what did Paul do there? He spent the first 11 chapters talking, explaining the gospel and our identity in Christ. That's what he spent the first 11 chapters doing. And then he switches. Then in chapters 12 through 16, he tells us what we ought to do with that. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to spend the majority of our time talking about our identity as God's family. And then we'll discover how we should act in light of that truth. So let's look back at our passage in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 17 through 22. And pay careful attention to verse 19. And he came, Jesus, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, here it is. This is our identity verse. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom... The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, let's clarify a few things. Um, I titled this sermon, Strangers to Family. Okay, And there's a double meaning there, I know. Um, we are sometimes strangers to family. But what verse 19 is telling us is that we have moved, if we are in Christ, part of God's family, we have moved from strangers and aliens to citizens and members, to family. And not the aliens that our Congress is wisely using our tax dollars to discuss lately, but the aliens as in foreigners, okay? Foreigners. Strangers and foreigners. We are no longer outcasts. We are no longer strangers to each other. We are citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. And that word household means family. It's just that in the times of the New Testament, the term family was not used as much as household. Like they would refer to your household as your family. He is of the house and lineage of David, 
That's how they would refer to it. So we just say household. We use that word for family. So the family of God, the household of God. So what does it mean? Let's talk about our identity for a minute. What does it mean to be the family of God? First point, it means that we are adopted. We're adopted, yeah. You can look at yourself, look to the person next to you, and if they're in Christ, you can tell them, hey, you're adopted, okay? Now, when I was young, I would say that to my brother in a different way, okay? And it would be mean, and he would, you know, we'd fight and all that good stuff. Um, <laughs> recently, I was giving my youngest girl a hard time, and uh, I said something to the effect of, we were going out, and I said something to the effect of, aren't you so glad I'm your dad? You know, time to give her a hard time. And she just, without missing a beat, looks at me and goes, Dad, I'm adopted. I'm like, oh, you're seven years old. That's pretty good. <laughs> she didn't want to be identified with me. That kind of hurt, actually. But, you know, the fact that we are adopted into God's family is a truth that we can't pass up. Because adoption here means a really good thing. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So this adoption is a wonderful thing. God has adopted us into his family. And you know what? I think that's even better than being born into it. It's much better, actually. Because guess what? Parents don't choose the kids that are born to them. It, they just get what they get, okay? You don't choose the parents that you're born into. You get what you get. There's no choice in the matter. But if you're adopted, that means your parents wanted you. They didn't have to adopt you. They wanted to adopt you. And for me, that's even better. Better than being born into God's family is the fact that God wanted me so much that he adopted me into his family. And when we have that spirit of adoption, we get to have the kind of relationship that we can cry, Abba, Father. Not just, Father, how holy art thou, which he is, but we get to cry, Abba, or Daddy, you're with me. The spirit of adoption leads us into an intimate relationship with the Father. And it, being included into the family of God means another great truth for us. It means that we are heirs. Heirs. So if we read the next two verses in Romans chapter 8, it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, that's something special. What does it mean to be heirs of God? Heirs of God. Well, in the literal sense of the word, it means that based on our inclusion into the family of God, we will each receive an inheritance from God. We will share in, with Christ. We will share with, his, in, with Christ in his sufferings here on earth. But when we come into the kingdom of God, we will share in his glory as well. We will share in his glory. We will share in his kingdom we will share in his riches, and best of all, we get a share of the love of the Father and the position as his sons and daughters. That is our greatest inheritance. 
our greatest inheritance. And again, we go back to the title of this sermon and, and look at our main passage in verse 19. We're no longer strangers and aliens. We are citizens and members of the family of God. And if we are members, then we are assured an inheritance. And if we go back to Romans 8.15, when it's talking about the spirit of adoption, there's two words that's interesting that he adds in there. Not just that we have the spirit of adoption. If you look at verse 18, it says, we have the spirit of adoption as sons. Why? Why put that in there? Why not say sons and daughters? Or why not just say spirit of adoption and leave it at that? Because it had a cultural meaning. A cultural meaning here. When the inheritance was divvied out, in an Israelite family. The firstborn would receive the best share, the biggest share. But the other sons would receive the rest. Sadly, in that day and age, very little was left to the daughters. And in fact, if both parents died, then it was the sons who would control the inheritance and would look after the, their sisters until the sisters were married. And so the sons in that culture held a little bit different place than the daughters. But here, Paul is talking to all of us, and he says we all receive the spirit of adoption as sons. Okay? So we all get the best portion of God's inheritance. Jesus being our first, the firstborn of all creation, but us being sharing that glory, sharing that inheritance with him. As sons, but as brothers and sisters. And that leads me to my next point. Um, unlike the brothers and sisters of the families in that culture, we are equal in God's family. We are equal. There's no better or worse, high status, low status anymore. Galatians 3, 26 through 29 says that for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So that puts us all on equal footing. All the differences that we make such a big deal of here on earth. They don't matter before the cross. They don't. Selfish pride is one of humanity's most pervasive sins. It's one of our most pervasive sins. So much of our sin that we see on the surface boils down to the root of pride. And this pride leads us to compare ourselves constantly to others and to find differences which divide us. Ethnicity, race, social status, education, wealth, family history, mental, physical ability, even gender. But all men and women are equal before the cross. In reality, we're all equal before Christ comes into our lives before the cross because we're all equally in need of a Savior. And then after Christ steps in, we're equal. We are equally saved, equally forgiven equally valuable and wanted in God's eyes. That is part of being in his family. In reality, no man is truly better or worse than any other by their own merit. It's only through Christ that we can be good 
that we can be free, and that we can be forgiven. The family of God is open to all. And this is what the Israelites didn't get for most of their time. God intended for them to be a beacon to all nations, bringing all nations to God. And they instead isolated themselves as a family, kept the nations out. And we can't do that with the gospel that we are given. Next, as the family of God, and this is a good one, we are secure. We are secure in this family. Hebrews 7, talking about Christ as the high priest, our high priest. In verse 24 of Hebrews 7, it says, He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So let's unpack this verse a little bit. Christ is our great high priest, making intercession, pleading our case as if before a court, in a court before God. And when God looks out, yes, we are guilty, but because of his son's blood, our sin is washed away and we stand innocent before God. So Christ is our great high priest. And because Christ has now and forever eternally won the victory, he will hold his priesthood permanently, unlike human priests of the day, because he will continue forever. Therefore, he is able to save us to the uttermost, unlike any other human priest of the day. And what does that word uttermost mean? It means this, completely and for all time. Completely and for all time. Once you are saved and adopted into the family of God, that's it. You're in. Just like we say that there is nothing I can do on my own to earn salvation, to earn that adoption. There's nothing I can do. There's also once saved, once truly saved, there's nothing I can do to cancel that out either. Yes, I'm going to fall. Yes, I might even... Turn my back at times on God because I am still in process. And we'll get to that in a minute. But the Holy Spirit doesn't let go of me. And He seals me until the day of judgment. Now, when we look at this in the context of our local church family being secure also means something a little different. On one hand, the secure is we are eternally secure. Christ is our high priest. But on the other hand, we should be secure in this family. We should feel secure. Because we are all members of this family equally. Now, some of us have a hard time, a hard time doing this. You see, God designed our earthly families and, and our church family to be the place where we feel most accepted and secure. This is in the environment that every child should grow up in, right? A nurturing, loving family who shows unconditional love to one another. And this is what we want in the church as a church family, a local body. But we have a hard time doing this. Because some of us can't get over the differences between one another. 
And some of us honestly have a hard time acting as family here because we don't like our families at home. We didn't like the family we grew up with. We didn't have a model of unconditional love to grow up with, maybe. Maybe our childhood was tough, and we're not, we don't know how a family should act. So how are we supposed to come into church and be family with a group of people that were strangers to us? Well, this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Being a part of God's family means that ultimately we are secure here. The security we have in our salvation should pour out into the security we feel here as a family. Because what we have in common is greater than what divides us. And see, the New Testament church had it. They had to learn this a different way. A lot of the people in the New Testament church, the local family was all they had. Because by becoming Christians and for the sake of the gospel, their personal families kicked them out. Or their communities kicked them out. And so the local church family was it. And they had to look after one another. Not that I want our families to kick us out, but sometimes I wish we had a little bit more of that feeling that the New Testament church had. That feeling of urgency and necessity when it came to our church family. We cannot take this family for granted. Next, and, and lastly for our identity portion of being the family of God, is uh, one that we can't overlook. We are being sanctified. That's part of your identity. You're in process. You're a work in, in process. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's what I was talking about when I said Christ is, our, is the firstborn, uh, when we were talking about being heirs. But I, I know this verse has the P word in it, okay? So let's just... Get over that, all right? That's not what we're here to talk about, okay? But we're looking at the conform to the image of his son part, all right? That's for another sermon. Pastor Al's got that one, all right? <laughs> um, but when we are saved, why were we saved? Well, we were saved so that we could be conformed to the image of his son. You know, it's that old <laughs> cheesy saying, you know, God loves you enough to meet you wherever you're at. No matter where you're at, no matter how deep in the hole you are, God will meet you there and he will save you. But you know what? He loves you too much to leave you there. He doesn't want to leave you there. He's going to work on you. And sometimes you're not going to like it. We are being sanctified. Being conformed to the image of his son. Now what does that mean? It means that we're not a perfect family. Just like your families at home are not perfect, this church family, we're a bunch of rotten sinners saved by Christ and in process. And we're all at different points in that process. And God's working on each of us uniquely. Just like your personal family, we're going to get on each other's nerves. We're going to say the wrong things at the wrong times. We're going to do the wrong things at the wrong times. We're going to be weird and awkward at family gatherings. Somebody's going to throw a temper tantrum. 
And we might even hurt each other from time to time, just like a real family. But remember, we're being sanctified. We're not all there yet. And we need to give each other grace. So that's, let's talk about knowing that we are the family of God and these points that we have in our identity. How should we act then with one another? Knowing that we are all in Christ, we are adopted, we are heirs of God's kingdom, we are equal before the cross, we are secure in our salvation and in our inclusion in the family, and we are being sanctified. How then should we act? How should we live as the family of God? Well, first, we need to make family a priority. We have to make family a priority. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So yes, Paul reiterates a general command, do good. We've kind of gotten that so far. By the time we get to Galatians, we should understand that point, do good. But, but Paul says, especially to those of the household of faith. Make it a priority. Because, you know what? God could have chosen any number of ways to carry out his mission to reconcile creation to himself. He could have. Do you ever think about that? God who could have organized, organized us in any way. He could have set up the church however he wanted to. And he could have performed, carried out his mission in the world however he wanted to. If he wanted, he could snap his fingers, everybody instantly saved, forcibly, the end. Or he could ride it in the sky every morning. As we go out, we look up, we see Jesus as Lord. He could. If he wanted to, he could order the stars at night to spell it out for us. But he doesn't do any of that. He chose us. He chose us. He chose the church family to be the ones to spread the gospel. We cannot fulfill our great commission if we are not united as a family, making our family a priority. How are we to invite outsiders into the family of God if our family looks more dysfunctional than theirs? And if we place less importance on it than they do on family? Most people just aren't that desperate. We're doing the entire world a disservice and the gospel itself a disservice if we don't make the local church a priority in our lives. And a lot of us, we view church sometimes like a pair of shoes. You know, we'll wear them until they kind of start to show some wear. They get uncomfortable. And then it's tossing the trash, go find a new pair of shoes. And you know what? When we go shopping for shoes, we're picky. It has to be the right price. It has to be the perfect comfort level, the right style. Everything has to match and fit my needs exactly. And then I'll buy that pair of shoes. And then I'll wear them until I don't like them anymore. A lot of us treat church the same way, don't we? Just hop from one to the other, never getting too deep. We view it like a pair of shoes. Francis Schaeffer once wrote that a lack of love towards one another, even in our differences, is how the Christian witness to the watching world is marred. More than that, it's the reason why many Christians find it hard to live among other Christians inside the church. 
Let's make doing good to one another and loving each other in the context of a church family a priority. And to do that, we're going to have to be humble. And that's the hard part for me, practicing humility towards one another. Philippians 2, that famous well-known passage, says, well-known but not well-practiced. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know, pride is a unity killer. It's a family killer. It keeps us from seeing people the way Jesus sees them. It keeps us from seeing ourselves the way that Jesus sees us. We cannot hope to be Christ-like towards one another if we have pride in the way. And when looking at Jesus, did you know that Jesus, when he, to describe himself, to describe his own heart, his own character, he only ever used two words? Like he said a lot, yes, I'm the son of man, the son of man has come to do this. So he described what he was doing and his identity in many ways, but he only described his heart with two words. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, he said that he is gentle and lowly. Gentle and lowly. Those are the two words that Jesus chose to describe himself. Gentle and lowly. Really? Think about it. Jesus, this is the guy who, as a man, was smart enough to best the most in, his most intelligent contemporaries. As a man, he was strong enough to survive a Roman scourging and then carry a cross. As the son of God, he was equal to God. As the son of God, he was powerful enough to create worlds or tear them apart. And yet he describes himself as gentle and lowly. Think about that for a second. I mean, that, that should change our definition of manhood at the very least. But that's what Philippians 2 is getting at. You know, have the mind of Christ Jesus. Be humble towards others, especially your brothers and sisters. Elsewhere, Paul is talking about, you know, brothers and sisters, don't take each other to court before the Gentiles. Work it out amongst yourselves. And then he goes, you know what? Have such a humble attitude. Know that it is better to be defrauded for the sake of the gospel. I don't know about you, but that rubs me the wrong way. Because I have a very strong sense of justice. And I'm like, no, no, no. Justice is going to prevail. I'm going to get what's mine. And Paul says it's better to be defrauded. That kind of humility is hard. But it leads us to reconcile. And that's the last thing we need to do as... Not the last thing, but the last thing we're going to talk about this morning. The... Our identity as the family of God leads us to reconcile. Reconcile with God and reconcile with one another. And that in turn will help us reconcile the world. So what I'm saying is to bring the gospel home. Bring the gospel into the family. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, 
In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. As the family of God, we need to reconcile. We need to be the models of reconciliation. We need to be the model of grace and forgiveness above all families on earth. Because above all families on earth, we have been given grace and forgiveness. So we ought to be the ones who know how to give it back. This needs to happen in our personal families. It needs to happen in the context of our church family. Now, who are we as the family of God? We are adopted because God wanted us. We are heirs with Christ, going to be heirs with Christ when he comes into his glory. We are equal before the cross. We are secure in our salvation, but also secure in our acceptance into the family. We are sanctified, being sanctified. And so how should we live? We make this family a priority. We practice humility towards one another. And we reconcile. So, what are some practical steps that we can do? Practical things, measurable things that we can do even this week to put these truths and this lesson into practice? Well, first of all, some of you need to make church a priority in your life again. Now, I know you all are here, so that's good. It tells me you've taken that first step. You're giving of your Sunday morning to come and worship, and that is excellent and praiseworthy. But some of us need to take the next step. It starts with attendance, but some of you need to get involved. Take on that ministry of reconciliation. Find ways to disciple other people, to give back what God has given you. Aaron Wheeler uh, wrote an article called It's Not Just Jesus and You. And in that article, she says that the privilege of adoption into God's chosen family allows us to work together for the common good of loving God and loving our neighbor in order to bring God the glory and praise due his name. We shouldn't live as spiritual orphans. We should commit ourselves to a people striving together to make that glory known to the watching world. It's a good quote. It's a good way of putting it. So some of us need to attend. Some of us need to be involved. Some of us need to begin tithing. I know, I said the T word, sorry. But, but really, I mean, this is our church. We are the family. And if we don't support it, who else will? Nobody. Secondly, some of you need to reconcile with a brother or sister. 
Some of you need to reconcile. And the best way to do this, number one, is to pray yourself up. Pray for the other person, for sure. Pray for the other person. And not that God would strike them down or would enact his vengeance, but pray that God would maybe bless them. God would give them understanding. And then set a date that you're going to do it. Because guess what? If I have a hard conversation that I know I need to have with somebody and I don't set a date for myself, then good chance that may not be happening. Set a date for yourself. Just practical stuff. And then practice humility. Practice humility. Like I was saying, better to be defrauded. That was 1 Corinthians 6, if you want to look that up. And then finally, as a practical application, some of you listening, may, some of everything I've been talking about may not apply to some of you because you're not a part of the family yet. Everything, I want to be clear, everything that I have said about our identity as the family of God, everything that I have said about how we should live in light of the truth of that identity only applies to those who are in Christ. And you have to make sure, look at yourself. Are you in Christ? So if that's where you are, I'd say your practical step is to join the family. Join the family. And how do you do that? Believe and confess. Believe and confess. And what do I mean by belief? John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So what's the big deal with believe and confess? Sure, I believe it. Well... Even the demons believe. So believing is not just believing that Jesus was a great guy. It was believing everything Jesus ever said about himself. That he is the son of God. He was the perfect man here on earth. He died as a sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice for us. God rose him again. Defeating death. That is what we believe. That he is now at the right hand of the throne of God. He is in his glory and we will join him one day. That is what it means to believe. Now, the sad thing is, is that even the demons believe all that. They've seen him. They know. It's because they're missing the second part, is the confession part. Now, Romans 10, it says, confess him. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? Well, it's not just going around saying Jesus is Lord. It's actively giving up your life. Choosing to give your life to Christ. Making Him your Lord. He is your master. You are no longer your own. That's the part that a lot of people, it's the part where the demons stopped. Couldn't do that. That's the difference between 
those who believed in Jesus and those who were truly following Jesus. It's kind of like the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and kind of get the idea that he was starting to believe in Jesus. Like he knew what Jesus was about. That's why he came to him. But when Jesus told him, you got to follow me above all else, he couldn't do it. He stopped short. So we have to believe and confess. And if you've never done that, today can be the day that you do. I pray that it is. Would you all pray with me? Lord God, you've given us a great passage to look at in your word today. You've given us this great truth that you've adopted us. Lord, I pray for those in here who have not come to the point in their lives where they believe or come to the point in their lives where they're truly ready to confess you as Lord. Lord, I pray that you will knock down the walls of their heart. Lord, that you will open up their eyes to the truth. Lord, and that you will adopt them into your family. And Lord, for those of us who are struggling to live out the truth of being the family of God, myself included, Lord, may you give us grace and wisdom. Lord, and help us to be humble towards one another. Lord, so that we can truly be the family of God, truly do good to one another, encourage one another, and build each other up as the body so that the world that is watching can see your gospel. Lord, thank you for giving us this mission. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right. One of the things that we get to do as the family of God is communion. God gave us, Jesus gave us two sacraments we need to do. We need to take communion and we need to baptize new believers. And so, the Last Supper... As they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Lord God, we thank you for your sacrifice, the physical pain that you went through, the breaking of your body, Lord. Lord, you took the penalty that was ours. You died the death that we couldn't so that you could give us the salvation that we couldn't earn and that we couldn't give ourselves. So, Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. And then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of, us, of excuse me, for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Dear God, to be honest, the bread doesn't taste all that good. It's unleavened, signifying your purity. And Lord, I guess it shouldn't taste all that good because it's meant to symbolize being broken and your sacrifice. 
But Lord, the fruit of the vine is sweet. And Lord, it is sweet that your blood covers us, washes away our sin, so that the Father looks on us and doesn't see our mess. Lord, he sees a work in progress. He sees your sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for the adoption that you give us through this. As we remember through communion. It's in your name I pray. Amen.